0: All right, let's talk about 2 uh, Chronicles. Are you glad to be done with 2 Chronicles? Glad to be moving on to Ezra. We move on to Ezra tomorrow. So, but 2 Chronicles, um, you got questions there or overall theme kind of questions. We have gone through the historical books, basically, before the exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are all post exile uh, books, or during exile, and then you have, um, then you get into what they call the poetry books. Job is considered a poetry book, even though it's some history, but it's a lot of prose in there, I mean a lot of poetry in there. Uh, Then you have, we're already reading Psalms and Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, those kind of things, and then we'll get into all the prophets, major and then minor. And so uh, we have definitely turned the corner on the half of the year, and we're finishing up the history book so questions you have things that you noticed or would like to talk about or things that touched you or bewildered you or whatever yeah it's josiah is a breath of fresh air um one of the things that happens uh one of the things that you notice and it becomes more and more apparent the closer you get to the exile as i mentioned is that there. Chronicles is basically concerned with worship and how they did with worship. So that's why we get a much more detail even about Josiah or Hezekiah and what they did. Um, one, of my, one of the things I marked was on August 1st, uh, chapter 31, verse 1, uh, they they do this festival. Um, what I liked was Hezekiah said, it's time to do the Passover. And you get that where the priests and the Levites were like, uh-oh, this is not good. We're doing it when we're not supposed to do it. This is not the way that we are supposed to do this. And Hezekiah, what does he say? He prays and says, I think God will be okay if we're trying to do the right thing. So he prays, and they have this big festival, and they celebrate it. In chapter 31, verse 1, I love just instant application. It says, when the festival ended, the Israelites who attended went to all the towns, and they smashed all the sacred pillars, cut down the asherah poles, and remove the pagan shrines. Just like, okay, now it's our job. Previously, this is an important step. Who's, who is it always talking about who is supposed to tear down those things? It's the kings, right? That they, they put that on the king. This is a little bit of a transition to show responsibility of the people. And part of the reason for that is, remember, when is this written? This is written after they come back from the exile when they did not necessarily have... Kings like they had here, and it became more of a people kind of institution. All right. Other things you noticed, maybe something you noticed in the text over the last few days. Yeah. Well, and they, you know, it was they had had some tough years, partly because of their disobedience with God, and it was, was part part of it was worship, and then part of it was taking down the poles, but part of it was taking care of each other too, and food allotment was a part of that. Well, and here's the thing: what you see throughout this and the reason what you see is God is very serious when sin happens but you also see you do see him almost rushing to restore them because of his love for them if they will right now this they wouldn't a lot of the time and it's important for if you're teaching this and saying that if you're teaching history with relevance for today you want people to understand The way you bring favor with God is you turn to him, and if you just turn to him, that's all it takes. And it's true. I mean, mean, God's never been embarrassed about his love for his people. If you think about the prodigal son, he comes back, and what does the dad do in that story? He runs to the son, and he does something in that society that would bring shame. He lifts up his tunic. You didn't show your legs. And if you lifted up to run, you were disgracing yourself, if you were the dad. And so he's never been embarrassed about showing love to us. And you do see that in this. If they would just turn to him, you know, he'll, he'll hear. Yeah, and they didn't necessarily. Right. So, and, and you have to see this as, um, in seminary, they, they talk about the polemic use of history. Now, that sounds really complicated. But what it means is the lessons you learn from history, that they're teaching things through history. And what you have to remember is 2 Chronicles is a book of history, but it's a book that's attempting to teach through history. You know, the, the old saying is those that um, forget history are doomed to repeat it, something like that, right? So they're teaching, and what they're teaching is, listen, at any moment, these kings could going to turn back to God. So if... You find yourself where the heavens have shut up, where the rain is not coming, where the land is desert. If you will, humble yourself, turn from your wicked ways, pray and seek his face. Then he will hear from heaven and will restore you. And so it's, they want that repeated over and over again. Chapter 30, yeah. Yeah, the the issue there is, Hezekiah, and you see this with Josiah as well. They they get in office and they turn back to the Lord and they go, "We have not been doing what the Lord called us to do." And so, what do we do? Well, in Hezekiah's case, we're going to celebrate the Passover. It's not the right month. Well, I'm not waiting 11 months. We're going to do it now. And so, get everybody together. Well, they all get together and go, "Oh, now we got a problem. We these people can't. They haven't done the ritual purification. Well, we can kill their lambs and just let them eat, and then we'll." Pray God has mercy. You are talking about? Well, it was their Passover. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the event that Jesus used to reinterpret for the Passover. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was a big. It was their supposed to be their annual biggest celebration. But they, Hezekiah is the first one to celebrate it in hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, they 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 had back in leviticus they had specific cleansing rituals to get to passover yeah and so they were supposed to not eat unworthily as paul would say in first in the first corinthians they, they, were, they were to take it with the right heart now theirs were much more external than ours I and mean, we don't ask everybody if they've washed their hands when they come in uh maybe we should but we don't right um, it, it was much more external, making sure their hands were washed and they had offered the right sacrifices. It wasn't an internal, you know, when we talk about make sure you don't take it unworthily, we're, we're saying make sure that, that you don't have unconfessed sin or relationships that are broken. Or, and that would have been part of it, but there was also that external factor. And so for them, it was visible to see Jim over there hadn't taken a bath in a couple of months. He's dirty. Well, we can let him eat. He can't kill it. We haven't done the ritual of purification that we should have from the temple. That's not the people's fault. That's our fault. They didn't know, so we'll depend on God's mercy here. They're they're catching up. I really think that was a catch-up kind of thing, you know. Yeah. It's like they they just forgot it. You know, what's interesting is what you do see out of the exile, when they come back from exile and they reinstitute worship and Passover, that was several hundred years before Jesus came. Well, what's still happening when Jesus is there? When does he take the Lord's Supper? He takes it during Passover. So what you see when they come out of the exile, it's like we are going to follow the instructions. And we're going to do Passover, and we're going to do the Feast of Weeks, and they do that faithfully for um, they returned in 586. So for over, that's 586 B.C. So over 550 years, they consistently did the Passover. The only time faithfully doing the Passover in the history of Judaism is about a thousand year, not quite that long. There's a few hundred year frame from about 550 years before Christ was born till 70 years after to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem is destroyed. And it's never been fully realized even since then like biblical like it's outlawed or outlined not outlawed in the Bible, outlined in the Bible. right? Solomon would have been you know, I wish, does anybody have that sheet I gave you a few weeks ago? Solomon would have been somewhere in the mid 900's uh, David was around 1,000. Uh, Solomon was in the mid-900s. And Hezekiah would have been, my dates have left me, in the 700 somewhere. Deborah, you got that over there? Yeah, let me look at it. David was around 1,000. I know that. And then Solomon would have been ended in 931. And then Hezekiah is going to be in 728 or so. So about 220, 220 years, somewhere around there. I went far off on my dates. Doctor Moore back at Union would be proud. Other things in Second Chronicles, yeah, they, they cooked over open flames when they had big pots. I don't, I mean, it was, they they were much more sophisticated society than we'd like to think sometimes. But, uh, yeah, they uh, and and they, you know, each family would have enough to cook for their family. And when I say that, that's not a meal for four point five like we think of, and you know in america we have two parents and two and a half kids so it's four and a half people in a family it's not that it's when they cook for their family they cook it, it's like the old farmer sunday afternoon meal you know everybody in the family would come over and you'd have 15 or 20 people they probably had sometimes 40 or 50 people at each meal and so you would had to have some large cooking areas they, they celebrate them well, let me say this Worldwide, and I don't know the numbers exactly, but worldwide, the Jews that um, follow the letter of the law exactly is about 1% of Jews, or 2%. Those are the ultra-conservative. Uh, uh, Orthodox, which doesn't necessarily mean that they follow it exactly, but try to follow as much as they can, um, are about 9%. I think it's like 90%, 85 to 90% of what they call secular Jews, which means that they will wear the yarmulke if they're male. They will go through a bar mitzvah. At Passover, they will eat uh, lamb, and they will eat the bitter herbs, and they'll go to the store and buy some unleavened bread. And they'll have, kind of like we do with Christmas, or, you know, it's a holiday for them, but it's not necessarily the high holy. You know, Rosh Hashanah is still their new year, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, the temple, they're not, you know, in Jerusalem, obviously on the Temple Mount is a uh, mosque, so they're not performing sacrifices there. But as far as the sacrificial system, I don't know. if I'm sure somebody can get online and find somebody, but I don't know of any Jews that are doing that. Not in America, probably. Peter wouldn't be too happy either. All right, other questions? Things, what about... You can do chronicles overall things that you saw. One of the things that I thought was interesting was um, Jehoiada, the priest that takes the young Joash, who's seven, and grooms him to be king. There's this interesting thing in verse 15 when you see who the real leader was. The people considered during that time. This is on the 29th. It's chapter 24, verse 15 said so that Jehoiada lived to a very old age, dying at 130. I would consider that an old age. But this is the interesting part. He was a priest, right? He was buried among the kings in the city of David because he had done so much good in Judah for God and his temple. Now, there are a couple of things about that. One is, this is a guy that doesn't get much publicity in the modern church, but apparently had such a big impact on the people That they buried a priest among the kings. Now they didn't always bury kings among the kings, right? I mean, they get buried, but they didn't necessarily get a good one and didn't get there. And again, and I know I feel like I'm over I'm saying this all the time, but realizing that their main concern is worship, why did he get buried among the kings? Because he was a good guy? Not really. He was. But he was buried because he had done so much good in his worship for God and for the temple. Now there are a lot of people that think that Ezra wrote Second Chronicles almost as a publicity piece to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem after the exile was complete. And you can see why that's thought. That didn't make it any less important or less valuable for us, but you can see how he could pass this around and go, Now what do we need to do out of this? We got to rebuild the temple. That's right. Let's get to it, right? And so you can see how it could be how people think that Ezra may have been part of of writing the chronicles here. In fact, uh, today's reading, when we finished Second Chronicles, if you haven't read it, you can just nod your head like you did. All right. Verse twenty-two. It's the last. It's the last chapter of Chronicles, verse twenty-two. Chapter 36, verse 22. It says in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, it's interesting that they spend, you know, 30-something chapters, 36 chapters telling you how Israel and Judah got to the place where there was no witness for God on the earth. And then you get to verse 22, and in two verses, it tells you that God just reversed it. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy given to Jeremiah, He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put his proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. Now, what historical records show is the main part of his proclamation was telling the Jews they could go back home. God has laid it upon me and go back home. But look what this writer says. This was a part of it, but he emphasizes it. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has appointed me to do what? Build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are the Lord's people may go there for that. And may the Lord your God be with you. You see how it can be seen as a track to get people to want to build the temple? Ezra says that, or whoever, whomever, and says, now what's our job? If you're God's people, you've got a task, and it is to rebuild the temple. So we'll read about in Ezra them rebuilding the law and the worship of God, which is soon. In fact if you've got your Bibles open you can turn to Ezra 1. if you don't have it open if you've got the one year you can just look to the next page. look how Ezra 1 starts. in the first year of King Cyrus the Lord fulfilled the prophecy, he stirred the heart of Cyrus to put the proclamation out. this is what he says. He's given me all the kingdoms. He's appointed me to build him a temple. Any of you are his people. Does that sound familiar? The, right? It's one of the benefits of reading the Bible like we're reading it is because you see these connections sometimes. If somebody just said you tell, read Ezra, when you first pick up Ezra, you would never think, well, I wonder if that's the last thing that was said in Chronicles. But it's almost verbatim, word for word, the end of Ezra is the beginning of I mean, the end of Second Chronicles is the beginning of Ezra. Now, the same is true when you get to the New Testament when somebody writes two books that go back to back. In the book of Luke, the last thing is Jesus giving a great commission, right? What's the next book he wrote? Acts. And in Acts, although it's phrased differently, it's Jesus giving a great commission and then leaving. And so the, when they, oftentimes when people would write books, they would tie them together in some grammatical way. All right, anything else in Chronicles before we move to Romans? All right, turn over to Romans, what we read this week. We started Romans 12, is that where we started this week? Any questions you have? You can ask before Romans 12, but any questions you have in the book of Romans? Chapter 16, the first word, or the first words, not the first word, but the first words. I'm looking at it in two different versions, because, yeah, the word there is literally a servant in our church, okay? And what you have to determine when you're reading in Scripture is whether a word like that is used as a title or as a description, okay? And so that's not as easy as some people would like to make it, but uh, there are, there are Instances in the New Testament when it talks about deaconesses and it puts servant with a, and I'm not sure about this, I'd have to look at the Greek, where they puts deacon with a feminine ending on it. You know, in the Greek language, unlike ours, every word is either masculine or feminine. And so they, or they have neuter, but they, masculine or feminine. So it would be a deaconess. Now, most scholars, conservative scholars, would say those were the wives of the deacons when it talks about the deaconesses. Uh, But in this case, most scholars would say that that's not a uh, title like that's Deacon Deborah or Deacon Kathy, but that is a description. That's one of the servants that's there, who's Deborah or Kathy. And then there are those that say that's splitting hairs. The problem is, here's the real problem, is that the apostles in Acts 6, when they talk about electing some men to serve, or when it talks about deacons in later passages, they took a very common word that was used every day and made it a title. Um, so, you know, how do you, were you using that as a title? And they didn't capitalize anything. In our world, if you want to say, um, for instance, uh, the word Lord in the English language, not today so much, but a couple hundred years ago, was used a lot. He is Lord of that land. He is over that land. Then there was Lord John or whatever, Lord uh, Patrick, whoever it was. You know, that was a title. But in the English language, you denote that by capitalizing it. If you put Lord Patrick, you knew who he was talking about. If he was Lord of the land. It's not a title. The problem in Greek is when they wrote the New Testament, there is no punctuation and no capitalization necessarily. So it's just letters together. That makes it more difficult. I think I ran around that issue enough to not answer. Other questions from Romans. And this was not the last time we will have those kind of discussions because when you get to the pastoral epistles and some places, there are some interesting discussions. I, my guess is, very soon, Our the bulk of our question time has been in the Old Testament. My guess is, here very soon, it's going to move to the New Testament. Because just this week, when we read 1 Corinthians, we're going to get into food, sacrifice to idols, and men living with their stepmom, and Lord's Supper issues, and not suing anybody. Minister is another word for servant. Yeah. All right. Other questions in Romans? Yes. All the way up top. Here's, here's the here's the salvation history. God created man. There, at the beginning, there was no Jew nor Gentile. He just created man and woman, and then they began to prosper. The world got messed up in a terrible way, and he sent the flood and destroyed it. Right? And so then... God recreates man through Noah and his family and it's starting to mess up again and God says remember his promise to Abraham from the very beginning was that I was going to make a nation out of you it'll be more numerable than the stars in the sky and I'm going to do what? Bless all nations through you and so God's plan was never to select the Jews And never incorporate the Gentiles. His plan was always to use the Jewish people, the Israelites, as his example and special possession and light to the Gentile world. I mean, in Romans, what you have is Paul basically saying, I'm going to the Gentiles because that's been God's plan from the very beginning. And we have separated ourselves too much. I would say in a similar way, we have to be very careful as the church that God has saved us, called us out. That's what church means, ecclesia, the called out ones. Called us out, made us a special people, his inheritance. But he didn't do that for us alone. He did it that we might be a light unto others. And so, Diana, it's not that he chose the Jews at the expense of the Gentiles, he chose the Jews for the purpose of reaching the Gentiles. It's, does that make sense? Maybe. And so, yeah, I, I mean, well, the reality is now we just try to convince. I mean, Jesus turned it into not Gentiles versus Jews. It's all. I mean, Jesus, we just talked about his great commission, which is make, make disciples of all nations. In Acts one eight, it was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so Jesus, I mean, there is a sense in which we uh, feel some obligation. I mean, even Paul in Romans says, if I could give up my own salvation so that my country would come to Christ, I would do that. So there is that sense that Paul felt that for his own people. But there's not any there's not any sense that we ought to spend more effort on jews than any other people group yeah there there are and some of that comes from an eschatological perspective uh an end times belief that uh, christ will come back when the jews repent and so if they can they feel they can speed up the coming of jesus if they do that there's some that just have a genuine concern like paul does here uh there are some that that look to uh, the book of Revelation and other places that seem to be a revival in Judaism, and they want to be a part of that. Uh, People in Judaism coming to Christ. So, The the reality is, today, like we just mentioned earlier, if you're going to reach a Jewish person, you're reaching somebody that's not really practicing Biblical Judaism. Um, Now, they wouldn't, I mean, the truth is, there are a lot of Christians not practicing Biblical Christianity, either. People that call themselves Christians, but... um, the the reality is when Christ came and he died for our sins and rose again from the grave and it began to spread and what Paul's doing here is he's turning it into a new Israel and the church is God's new people and while the nation of Israel, the geopolitical boundary of Israel is still important I believe the most important people of God are the church and that it's our job to convince all of not our job to convince. It's our job to tell and share with all about who Christ is. Does that answer, Diane? Now, I I don't think that that was ever. I mean, it's obvious that He helps the Jews. It's obvious that He, uh, the nation of Israel, that He, um. It, it's obvious that He He has them as a special people, but it was for a greater purpose. It, it wasn't that He loved any less. It, it's just for a greater purpose. Yeah. Well, it's because, well, you know, the thing is, Abraham didn't choose choose him. God chose Abraham, and Abraham obeyed. Um, It's because, it's just because God, this is going to sound simplistic, and, and don't tell any of my professors I said this, but he had to have somebody. If his plan is that I'm going to build a people who are going to then demonstrate my love and care for them to the nations of the world. For instance, in Solomon, who was King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, and Queen she- of Sheba comes and goes. You're greater than I thought. Your God is unbelievable. Um, it, he had to have somebody. You know, when like Abraham was walking around and said, "Well, I'd really like to be the father of a great nation. Is there a God out there that'll help me?" I mean, he had to have somebody, and so it wasn't a selection. Um, it wasn't a selection. It, I don't know how to phrase this it wasn't a selection that he loved them more than anybody he loved abraham more than anybody else on the earth and because he loved abraham more than anybody else on the earth and his love was small compared to everybody else i'm just going to make a nation out of abraham because i want to spend time with him i don't want to spend time with everybody else it's just abraham it was more this is my plan and my ultimate plan is to have a people that i will send my son into who will then die for the sins of the world but I want a plan that begins with the people. One of the issues that we have sometimes when we read the Bible is we read it very microscopically. We read it verse by verse, bit by bit, story by story. We, we read this week the story. Even if you're doing a through-the-Bible kind of study in Sunday school, this week you're reading in 1 Samuel 2, and in two weeks you're reading in 1 Samuel 18 because you're doing all of First and Second Samuel in three months. And then you're going to leave there and you're going to go to Jude. And so it doesn't connect. And when we do that, we get bits and pieces instead of the overall story. Other questions? Thoughts? Book of Romans. Yes. And and here's what I would say, based on what I just talked about. First of all, what I think Paul is saying there is that the, the Jews took their special status too far. Because why does he say their hearts have been hardened? It's not because of what God has done. It's because... Yeah, because too many Gentiles are coming in, and, and we can't associate with the Gentiles, so this must not be of God. The wrong kind of people are accepting the message. If Paul would have stayed in Jerusalem and just preached Jesus Christ to all the Jews, they would have been fine. But when they started engrafting, as he talks about before, these branches of the Gentiles, that's when they hardened their hearts. I, I think in verse 26, and I, I mean, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it's and this is some very difficult passage to, to wade through. My feeling is what he's saying there is that Israel will be saved, which is the people of God will be saved. And that uh, the liver will come, he will turn godliness away, and this is my covenant with them. Uh, they're enemies of the gospel, but election is concerned. They're loved on account of the patriarchs. And what he's saying there is there is still a special bond with these people because of, the story that has played out. But um, they're still disobedient at this time. They've become disobedient that they too may now receive mercy. Uh, and so they, he says basically that Israel is in the same boat that we all, that all the Gentiles were. That now Israel is the same place we were and we all have the same choice to make. Paul is also Paul has a strong belief that eventually Israel will come back to the Lord in full force. Right. He has a strong belief. And part of that comes, I'm not saying it's not true, but Paul has such a heart for them. And what's interesting based on these verses, there are now missionary movements called the Back to Jerusalem movements that are attempting specifically to go to Jerusalem. Um, and this is an interesting thing. Almost all of them are out of China. And they are in China where Christianity is growing faster than any other place on the face of the earth. Um, there, there are statistics that say uh, in twenty fifteen years, there will be more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. You're talking 400 million, possibly. And there are people in China who have no cars or transportation who are walking to Jerusalem to be missionaries in Jerusalem. And they base it on these verses. Um, so it's not it's one of those verses that Scripture teaches me that um, that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. That's in the book of Acts, that's in Romans prior to this. And Paul has a heart for them, but I know that regardless, they will not be saved except through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a nice picture of the ingrafting. That's the word that it uses. That uh, Anybody ever had skin grafted? Anybody ever had skin grafted? I haven't. I've heard about people, right? And they graft skin from one part onto another part of your body, and it just blends in. Um the only reason I would say it seems like an end time kind of statement but there doesn't seem to be any other end times teaching around it um, it seems to be because he's talking about their situation now and what they're doing now and so um, just a little note on Romans there are a lot of people that think that Romans was, this this particular Romans was written to the church at Rome but that the middle part the content of it was a almost like a track that Paul had written to hand out or to give people to read about what Christianity is all about. Because you could uh, you could lead somebody to Christ just by reading Romans and talking about it, right? I mean, growing up, how did you lead somebody to Christ? Through the Roman road, right? And you had it in your Bible. Some of you may still have that, and you turned here and there. Um, but... And so they think that you add on the beginning of that. Paul had this letter, this stock letter about things, and then you put chapter sixteen and you put chapter one on the ends, and it's a he's personalized what he's written in the middle. And so that this could have been passed on to several churches, with this one in particular being in Rome. Just a little interesting sidebar. Here's the, one of the things that happens always in the epistles and the letters you have a section of theology and then a section of application. And usually they're pretty balanced. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are theology. The second three chapters, for the most part, are application. The problem with what Paul wrote here is he wrote way too much theology to be able to flesh out the application. So you do just get that, oh, and here's what that means. And it's very quick little statements. I mean, I was just thinking as I was reading that, I outlined a lot of it, I thought, what if I tried to preach like four verses and it'd take forever? Because you'd have to unpack so much. Um, I mean, just take uh, verse nine through thirteen. Don't just pretend to love others; really love them. Well, you, I mean, you could you could do something with that, probably. I guess you can preach, hate what is wrong, hold tightly what is good. There's another little statement: love each other with genuine affection, take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Well, that's a lot of stuff in four verses. But it's Paul just kind of saying, All right, I've given you dense theology. Let me give you the machine gun approach to application. It reminded me, I was I was at registering Eli for second grade today, and there's that... I can't remember who wrote it now. Some of you may know the everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten. Fulgham. And, and you read that, and it's, it's like this almost. It's just little short stands, you know, share with others, be nice, treat your stuff nicely, treat other people like you, you know. Interesting. Anything else in Romans? We talked a little about King Uzziah's fall last week, and I, I know this is going back, but I just saw this highlighted. There's this, this terrible phrase in there. When he became powerful, he became proud, which led to his downfall, which is common even today. Chapter thirteen, verse six, is the is uh, on page seven ninety five, is that uh, passage we don't like to read on April fifteenth. Pay your taxes for the same reasons. Now, let me ask you a question, okay? To whom were they paying taxes in Rome? Caesar. Who declared himself as God? So they were not giving taxes to a Christian leader, right? There have been there have been those in recent years who have even advocated not supporting governments that are not being led by born again believers. Romans thirteen kind of says, "You pay your taxes." Well, there, he's talking about Caesar there. I can tell you this. We've never had a president who thought of himself as much as Caesar thought of himself, and these were people. this was an emperor that was getting ready to really do some damage to the Christian faith. He was persecuting believers, wasn't just giving lip service to it. The persecution was coming pretty heavy soon. I mean, in Paul's writing this at a time when persecution was rampant throughout. If he could, I mean, he could have said in there, everyone must submit to the governing authorities unless they're persecuting you, and then you don't have to. He says, no, submit to him. But it goes to a theological premise, which is that's because God has established that. I mean, you know, yeah, and the point is that God never loses an election, right? I mean, there may be a born-again believer elected or lose, but then, I mean, God has lost and has somehow lost control, and that he's up in heaven going, man, I can't believe that guy won. What am I going to do now? Right? And he's in control. And so we have to trust in his sovereignty more than we would like in our own judgment to think of how we would run it or what others would think. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree when things are happening that are not politically, that, that we don't think are right. That doesn't mean that we don't stand up for our values and our beliefs. That do not mean we don't vote the way we think we ought to vote. But it means that when... I may have told you all this. I remember when I was younger, a particular president was elected that I did not want to win. It was my first election to vote in, I think. And it did not go the way I had voted, and I just did not know how that could happen. And my brother was a supporter of the person who won. And I called him, or he called us, he was away, and he called to gloat. Now, I know your families probably don't do that. But in ours, there is gloating occasionally. And I remember saying, and you'll, I was young, you'll excuse my language for a moment. I said, well, this country is headed to hell in a handbasket tomorrow. And my brother said, you don't trust God much then, do you? I said, well, you're not. Yeah, I'm the preacher, all right? I'm the one that's going to do that. But he was right about that. I that doesn't mean that we don't fight. I mean, this is on the eve of an election. That doesn't mean that we don't try to choose the right people. That doesn't mean that we don't fight for our political beliefs. But it does mean that we realize ultimate control rests in the Lord God Almighty, not in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or the State Capitol Building or City Hall. God, And, and it, it's true whether or not they're doing good things always, to what we think are good things for God's people. I mean, God would say that he used... The Babylonians to do his will. Well, what did they do? They destroyed Jerusalem and they took God's people into exile. And yet, God says that was my will being accomplished through the kings of this world. We get the idea that God's will must always be for our prosperity. Now, we don't say it that way because then we'd be called health and wealth, but we live that way. All right, that's enough soapboxing on eye. Did you have a statement or question, Mr. Jones? All right, let's talk about Psalms and Proverbs. I always wonder if we're going to have enough to get through the hour, and I end up talking a lot when we get through the hour, right? I'm just glad I have a voice to talk Sunday. I didn't know if that was going to be the case. Psalms and Proverbs. There are a couple of, I think, good Proverbs this week. Uh, This is another one of those that we're going to put on our kids' walls. If you insult your father or mother, your light will be snuffed out in total darkness. I wonder if they make that. You know those, those things that they put up on the walls now? They We've got one in our house that says, As for me and my house will serve the Lord. It looks like painting on the wall. I wonder if they've got one for that verse I can put in the boys' rooms, right? Other Psalms, Proverbs that you liked or meant something to you? Some of the Proverbs are just really good. Like the stolen bread one. Stolen bread tastes sweet, but it turns to gravel in the mouth. I mean, vivid, descriptive. I couldn't help but think of verse chapter 20, verse 21. It says, An inheritance obtained too early in life is not a blessing in the end. And I couldn't help but think of our culture's current obsession with teenage stars um, and how those kids that get so much so early, it is disastrous for their lives. Most of those kids that end up off track, if you ask them when they're 12 or 13, a lot of them came from Bible-believing, teaching homes. They talked about their relationship with God. But too much, too soon, leads down the path of destruction. And I worry in America that we, not in the same way of celebrity, are not setting our own kids up for failure, in that the generation that we have now gets so much, so soon, and it's just trying to take care of our families or making them what they desire. mean you know, you read that proverb and you see it fulfilled, and uh, it makes you stop and think. Other stuff, questions, anything at all? Yes, Danny. Proverbs, what twenty two? We're not there yet, Danny, but we'll look there. Proverbs 22:15. NIV here, and I've got, it's going to take me a minute, and I've got the new living here. Yeah, that I've got both. The NIV is folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. In the heart of what? A boy? It sounds like we've got some issues we need to discuss, Danny. I'm still trying to find it. We're not going to be there till the month of September, Danny. You're getting ahead of us here. We will read Proverbs 22:15 on September the 2nd. And it says in the New Living, A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it away. Yet another verse that could go on the walls of my children's bedroom. Difference the differences in the versions of the Bible come from translation philosophy, when they were translated, and why they were translated. The King James was translated in the 1600s. And so, obviously, they translated the King James to make it the most readable version of the Bible in English. And in that day and time, it was the most readable version. But if you read it today, we don't talk like that. And so that's why newer versions have come. Now, if you want the real explanation for translations today, why there are so many today, is a lot of money. You don't, the reason King James is still published by everybody because you don't have to pay anything to publish a King James. There's no copyright on it because it was written in the 1600s. So they, they don't have any copyrights. The reason we have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, also known as the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible, is because Lifeway was paying royalties every time they quoted the New International Version. And so Lifeway got their own translation. And it's a good one, and it's done by good people. But now when they print the HCSB in their material, they don't have to pay anybody for it because it's, it's theirs. Um. So, yeah, and that's that's what it's it's it, it and then New Living is the NIV twenty five years later basically the NIV was written in the mid seventies late seventies and so it was what they call um, dynamic equivalence translation. There's formal equivalence. There's word for word. There's dynamic equivalence. And there's paraphrase. And the New International Version, New Living, are dynamic equivalence. That means that they look at a verse. And they say, what does that verse mean? Not, what does each individual word mean? Now, that has to go into it. But, you know, like phrases that we use today that are colloquial or, you know, whatever, um, they would say, well, okay, what does that mean for us today? How would we say that today? And they still stick pretty close. It's not like they do crazy stuff. But they try to make it where you can just sit down and read it. Uh, and that's why I like doing the one-year Bible in the New Living because it is – specifically things like numbers and dates I and mean, you wouldn't think that would trip you up but when you're reading about 700 cubits that doesn't make a whole lot of sense but 500 feet makes sense or on the fourth day of Chislev, when is that when it says january 12th i'm not saying those two go together but it just makes it easier yeah well they all do that to protect themselves no all right we're done